Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Donald Trump is running to stay out of prison. And if we elect, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Listen, I know the truth. The truth is hard. But if we elect Donald Trump, we are willingly giving Joe Biden four more years in the White House, and America can't handle that. God bless you, and God bless America. Well, that was not the result Will Hurd was going for. The former congressman from Texas, former part of the CIA, running for president of the United States as a Republican, a long shot's long shot, there at the Lincoln Dinner in Iowa. And the boos were real as he walked off the stage. Going after Trump may or may not be a smart plan. When your will heard... You don't really have any place to go but up, so you don't worry about downsides. But there are plenty of candidates who have downsides to worry about. Tony Katz, good to be with you. Tony Katz today, 833-GOT-TONY, 833-468-8669. Mike Pence spoke. He spoke at the event and made uh, very, very clear his position on abortion. And we can end Biden's radical abortion agenda by doing just what you all did recently here in Iowa, and that is promoting pro-life laws at states across the country. And I believe the time has come for a minimum national standard of a 15-week ban at the federal level. That did not get much applause either. But then again, for a guy who's been pro-life his whole life, to push for a 15-week ban might have seemed contradictory to the people of Iowa. It certainly did to me. Craig Robinson joins us right now. He is the Iowa GOP, or long history in Republican politics in the state of Iowa, including running those caucuses. He now works with CG Delivers, cgdelivers.com. Um, uh, let's start with, with, with Vice President Pence, uh, who... Uh, needs Iowa desperately and is out there courting that evangelical vote every single day. But do you court the evangelical vote by saying, well, I'd be okay on a national level with some abortion? No, no, you don't. And I think that, you know, the, the he alluded to the, the law that was just signed uh, by Governor Reynolds, you know, a couple weeks ago. That was a six week ban. And so, you know, I just think like the message he's running to be the social conservative. I also think it's an issue, Tony, that that while while some people are really passionate about, there's just bigger fish to fry a little bit. And I know that upsets people in the pro-life community when you say that. But I, I feel like, you know, we've had a Supreme Court decision that really sets the standard at 15 weeks anyway. Um, and so. You know, what he's offering there isn't a whole lot. And I think a lot of people know that. The activists in the room know that. 
I I believe that that is a very accurate assessment. It's, as, as I took it, it seemed that for a guy whose whole life is about we cannot have abortion, he seems now to be okay with it. Your point is much more uh, focused to the idea of Iowa did six weeks and here he is speaking 15 weeks. The real question is, is anybody talking about this at all? Certainly abortion is a subject the political left is desperate to engage because they feel that it's a political uh, winner for them in a national. And I don't think uh, I don't think that uh, Mike Pence did himself any favors here. The overall take of his speech was what did he did he win anybody over or is he still an also ran? I think an also ran. I mean, I I think that I mean, I have a little frustration with how this event was set up. I mean, you started off with clips from, from Will Hurd and it's like, so we're, we're, we're limiting how long a former president can speak to 10 minutes, uh, 10 minutes for, you know, Tim Scott, but we're going to give the same 10 minutes to guys who have no shot, you know, and, and then you're, you know, people are kind of surprised. Well, you know, I thought Trump would be better. And I'm like, he gave him 10 minutes. He can't get going in 10 minutes, you know, and so to me, I thought it was it was nice, but like it wasn't set up to let these people, you know, show the differences between themselves and other candidates. It was a 10 minute speech. It's nice. If you want to have an event where you get to hear everyone, this was it. Uh, but I don't think anything really moved the needle much that night. Talking to Craig Robinson, uh, he is the Iowa GOP -er, long, long in the Republican Party, uh, running things there, running the caucuses, talking about the Lincoln dinner that took place in Des Moines. This was a little bit of President Trump from that night. In the newest echelon poll of swing states, we're trouncing Biden by seven points. In the big new premise poll, we're beating Biden 43-39, while DeSantis is losing to Biden 33-38. In other polls, I'm leading Biden by six, seven, eight, and 11 points. Does that work when Trump's there referring to Ron DeSantis as Ron DeSanctimonious or Ron DeSanctis and all the name calling? Does that work amongst the GOP faithful? Uh, I, I don't know if the name calling works, Tony, but I think what does work is remind people, here's where I'm at in the polls. And here's everyone else. So, like, you know, you can be all hot to trot for one of these other guys, but I'm going to win. And let me tell you, that wins. That that has sway over that type of room. Um, and so while it wasn't some great speech that you're going to remember and we're going to replay like Ronald Reagan gave, you know, 50 years ago, uh, at this moment in this race, how it's set up, uh, him going through and saying, look, none of these guys can hold a candle to me in the polling. Uh, it works. We're getting close. We're getting close to actual voting and no one's really challenging him yet. Also, there was uh, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida. We know the challenges he has had, the reset of his campaign. Listen. Hello, Iowa. Are you ready to send Joe Biden back to his basement in Delaware on a permanent vacation? I can promise you this, in my White House, there will be no cocaine allowed in the White House. And look, my son's only five years old, so he's not going to be lining his pockets with money from foreign governments. So don't worry about that. It's 
he hit he takes all the easy shots uh, right there uh what is his what is it? I mean, they are the easy shots, man. What can I say? Uh, if I wanted to really tell the joke, I'd be like, wow, he really made uh, the audience snort. Right. But that's rude. That's where you draw the line, my friend. Um, talk to me about the, the, the new approach. That's a, that's supposed to be upbeat, fun. Ron DeSantis, not cold, calculating, uh, robotic Ron DeSantis. How did it go over and what's his what's his short term future looking like? It, look, I think Ron DeSantis had a pretty decent weekend in Iowa. He, he campaigned. Uh, in, in some rural areas of the state before hitting this dinner. And, and he, look, you saw it in the audience when he was introduced. They, people want to like him, right? And that's still an advantage that he has over most of the field. His deal is to bring it home, and part of the way you can do that is to be more likable. I think that introduction um, kind of lets people, you know, he's not going to give a policy speech, right? Um at this moment where he's at. And so I think just taking that approach was probably the smartest thing he could do to, to ease people in and say, just listen to me. You're going to like me. Um, you know, we can have some fun with this. And so I thought, I actually thought that approach was probably the right approach for him to take at this moment. Uh, as you listen to the candidates there, who was the candidate who had the best presentation? Who was the candidate who came out worst? Yeah, I, well, you know, Will Hurd's an easy loser just by crowd reaction. Um, you know, the the one who who kind of separated for me a little bit was uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, where he was just if you were saying like, so who's who's the forward looking presidential candidate? Um, you know, it was him. I mean, he he kind of tried to elevate us, and I don't know if it necessarily worked great, but I I give him credit for the attempt to kind of elevate, to be bigger than yourself, you know, in terms of his patriotic themes and then, you know, taking on the IRS, taking on the FBI and reforming it. Those are the types of things that I think get people excited about. I give him a lot of credit for for going there with that tact. And um, is it, you know, what, what, what I'm not convinced at yet is, is are people buying it? Um, but I do think they like it. Um, and so we'll see. I thought that his speech was the one that kind of was different in my book than the others. And you put Will Hurd at uh, the bottom. Uh, some of those uh, also ran, right? I, I, might, I might put Perry Johnson at the bottom. His, his scream at the end is something I can't get out of my head. Um, Who in the world was, is Perry Johnson? <laughs> well, he looks like the the old guy from Wedding Crashers, uh, <laughs> but Christopher Walken. Uh, but he's a Des Moines or a, he's a Detroit businessman. Um, and again, this is my problem with the event. We're we're giving him ten minutes of time, and we're giving Suarez ten minutes of time, and we're giving you know all, we're all of this time at this event where. You know, we're at a stage in this race, Tony, where we really need to decide who has the vision for the country, right? And no, we we're, we need to listen to, you know, anyone who is anything in this race. And I think that's unfortunate. 
So Chris Christie didn't move the needle. Nikki Haley didn't move the needle. Tim Scott didn't move uh, the, the the needle. What about uh, Burgum? The uh, you've got the governor of North Dakota, wildly popular in North Dakota, a financial success story in his own right, in his uh, software sales to Microsoft, uh, and he he's he can stick around. He's got the money to stick yeah. around. Uh, nothing. Well, I, I have a. So I actually thought his was interesting too. I mean, I have I have a little bit of soft spot for Doug Burgum, and it's because he reminds. I worked for Steve Forbes and in on his two thousand race, and that's what I see here. Right, I see a guy who is ready to go and get in the gritty and talk about the issues. Right, um, talk about energy independence, talk about uh, all of those things, and he doesn't. Like there was a Des Moines Register story about, you know, the we have some issues, local issues here. He dove right in and, and he didn't he didn't bat an eye of telling people where he stands. I think there's an appetite for that, too. And I've, I've seen that in my own my own town where, you know, we've gathered, you know, there's a group gathered to talk issues with him and people walk away and they're like, I like this guy, you know, like. This is a smart guy. This is a guy who is, you know, laser focused on issues. Um, and I think when you look at the rest of the field, a lot of people, they're not that. And so I do think he offers something different. And I thought he had a good reaction uh, from the audience on Friday night that um, I think they appreciated the approach. Talking to Craig Robinson of Iowa, Iowa GOP are on uh, the Twitter box. You take a look at the polling. Trump is at 54, DeSantis 18.3, Ramaswamy 4.9, Pence 4.3, and it goes down from there. That, of course, is the national for the Republican uh, nomination, uh, Iowa, whether you're talking about the latest out of uh, AG National Research, has Trump up 27. Fox Business has Trump up 30. Uh, this, th- There's no one chipping into Trump's lead right now as you see it. No, not here. Not at all. See that I really, I really that, think like, there, there's not even a debate to that to that answer. It's just like, nope, that's it. It's over. And is there anything that's going to move anyone? Is there anything Trump does that makes him fall out of favor? You know, what's being talked about around here now is, is that there's this realization from this is from the political class. These are from people who have worked campaigns that are in business now, whatever. They're longtime, uh, you know, Republicans in the know. And that they're now like they're, they're asking. They're like, so it's it's Trump. Right. The realization that that, you know, there isn't the alternative to him brewing here. And so I think there's a lot of people, whether they like it or not, are starting to realize that the probability is high that he's going to be the nominee. And they're just now recognizing that. Well, I I think that there's you you know, there's always, you know, you you hope that maybe there and these people are are maybe not the type of people who are inclined to be enthusiastic uh, Trump supporters, right, from the get-go. Um, but there's – I think they thought that there was really something there with DeSantis and that there could be a significant challenge to Trump for the nomination. And I think now it's they're realizing that that's a lot more difficult to do 
and you know it's it's basically August one, and if this is going to materialize, um, I mean, like the time's running out, you know, and we don't have we don't have you know like we had the straw poll in in, in previous cycles, you know, we didn't have one last time either, but. But that event forced these campaigns to come and commit and for their message to take root with voters. And if it didn't, you were out of the race. So the, the winnowing of the field started in August, right? There's nothing like that that's going to force people out of the race before we vote in January. And, and I think that's what people are noticing, too. Like, besides running out of money, there is nothing that's going to force someone out of the race. And so with when when you're not narrowing the field, the opportunities for for people to move it's it's much more difficult, and you're going to have to make that move yourself, you know. And it's like that's why I think Vivek, you know, who has a little bit of movement, and and these debates, that's what to that's what to watch. I think it's hard. It's going to be really hard for anyone to move much to to have this moment. And it's like you're really competing against the second tier. And then, like, once you do move and you move up, well, then then you got to deal with Trump. His name. <laughs> you got to do that all in six, six months. Craig Robinson is his name. Iowa GOP. I, Craig, always appreciate uh, you. Iowa GOPER on the Twitter box. Follow him there. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. I don't know, just some things will hit you differently than other things, for sure. And this, this hits differently. Paul Rubens. Pee Wee Herman. That was the character. Paul Rubens dead at the age of 70. That's crazy. That is surreal. I didn't know that he had cancer either. I'm trying to think what I last saw him in. It was a it was a quasi serious part. It was it wasn't only murders in the building. It was a God. I can picture it. I can see it. It's, it's gonna drive me crazy. But the Pee Wee Herman character is iconic. And then being caught in that adult movie theater, in engaged in a little bit of uh, self happiness. And then the MTV uh, Video Awards come out. He is a presenter. He walks on stage and he goes, heard any good jokes lately? Yeah, I mean, like right after. I mean, that's just, that's as perfect self-deprecating as you can get. An odd career for sure, but his. And this is the most I've ever heard of this theme song. Yeah, I don't. I have no idea. I, uh, I, I didn't really watch the show. I was not really a Pee Wee's Playhouse guy. 
I had other things about him that I was like, okay, cool. Dead at the age of 70, man. That's crazy. That's a baby. Baby, kids. That's all I'm saying. Uh, The NFL has got some drama. And Indianapolis is ground zero. I'll break it down. This is Tony Katz today. It didn't dawn on me that people won't pay for a running back. Not people. NFL teams. I mean, they need them. They want them. But they're just not willing to write big checks for them anymore. Just not willing to write the big check. Okay. But when you're Jonathan Taylor of the Indianapolis Colts and you are the offense, the only shining star, even when you're injured, you can't rework the contract to get a bigger check? Does your holdout mean nothing? Or is this all about Jim Ursay once again showing himself as a guy who is all emotion, no uh, sensical presentation? Did he screw up a deal? And what in the world of this agent of Jonathan Taylor, Malkikawa, who I believe I'm pronouncing his name properly, who represents other NFL players, including uh, Shaquille Leonard of the Indianapolis Colts, UFC uh, fighters, seems to know what he's doing. Is he leading Jonathan Taylor astray? What in the bloody heck is going on here? And how does it have ramifications throughout the entirety of of the league. Tony Katz, good to be with you guys on Tony Katz today. JMV joins us from 93.5-1075, the fan in Indianapolis. He is the voice of sports in Indiana. Uh, take me through the last 48 hours, uh, maybe 72 hours. Jonathan Taylor wants the big contract. Jonathan Taylor uh, is is uh, meeting with Ursay. Ursay's putting out tweets. You've got uh, Taylor's agent putting out tweets. The next thing you know, Jonathan Taylor wants a trade and uh, Jim Ursay saying, yeah, that's not happening. What's going on? Uh, you just got the normal cold circus, Tony, is what you got. Circus is in town once again. You know what's funny about this entire thing is this is all stuff that we knew, the way you just explained the whole devaluing of the running back. And obviously, guys like Christian McCaffrey and Alvin Kamara, who are third down good as well out of the backfield, pass catching threats, are going to make more money. Those guys are not viewed as disposable. But those so-called bell cows like Jonathan Taylor, uh, like Derrick Henry, are viewed as more disposable. What's about this entire thing, this is all common knowledge to anybody, especially Colts fans that pay attention to football. And had had Jim just not said anything at the beginning, you kind of wonder how this Jonathan Taylor thing was going to play out. Because now as we stand, we've got this debate. All right, is Jim Irsay cheap? He didn't want to pay anybody. You know, blah, blah, blah. And then on the other side, you got Jonathan Taylor, whom we know wants to get paid. And you just mentioned his agent. His agent wants to get him and impress him. You know, an agent he just hired in May wants to impress him with a big deal. This is what I did for you. Uh, this was all going to happen anyway, all of it. So if Jim would have just not started this whole thing out in public on Twitter, it kind of makes you wonder if, because now he's kind of vilified, along with the side of Jonathan Taylor, who is incredibly vilified right now. You wonder if this would have escalated to the point in which it has. But again, in typical Colts fashion, 
you can't leave a good soap opera alone. You got to have a bit of a circus. And Tony, here we are. The problem is here we are doesn't solve two things. A, what does this team do about a, a running game? That's nothing against uh, Zach Moss. You almost wish he had Naeem Hines back, but he is now seriously injured in Buffalo, going to be out for the season. Who knows if it could have happened here, and who knows if, if they the team still wanted him here. You don't have a running game the way you did now. No matter what, you don't have a running game the way you did. You're Anthony Richardson, or I should say you're, you're the fan looking at the quarterback position, Anthony Richardson, the rookie coming in, or your Anthony Richardson yourself saying, at least I know I've got a guy behind me who could take some of the pressure off. How does this affect the entire team? Well, I think it does because you need, if you want and you want to see Anthony Richardson as the starting quarterback, which certainly I do in week number one, you take a lot of pressure off of his mistakes and off of this offense if you have a really good threat. And obviously the number one offensive threat for the Colts is that of Jonathan Taylor. You take that away and you got a running back by committee, which obviously is nowhere near the threat that Jonathan Taylor is. But I don't know, Tony, how this is going to work out any other way than Jonathan Taylor just going in, having to eat it, and play. I don't know how that's going to work out any other way. We saw Le'Veon Bell years ago, Tony. Uh, He decided to take a stand like this, too. My man lost a ton of money. A ton of money. So I can't imagine that this agent is going to try to justify something similar with that of Jonathan Taylor. So that's that's where we are right now. I think ultimately you're going to see Jonathan Taylor play. I think he's going to have to. I don't know if you're going to get maybe a Rodney Dangerfield Caddyshack situation where you know he gets hit or something like that, and he goes, "Oh, my arm! I think it's broken," and you know, and goes out. I don't know if you're going to see that type of drama. And normally I would say, "Well, the Colts don't want that drama," but you know what? They're the ones that help create the drama that we have right now to go along with the drama that we had a year ago. So it seems like they almost really do like the drama at this case. I just don't see the leverage or lack thereof with Jonathan Taylor, the situation he's in. I don't see how ultimately his only move is to play on this team that uh, clearly there's a huge canyon-like divide between he and that team right now. Talking to JMV from 93.5-1075, the fan, the voice of sports in Indiana. That divide is huge. That divide is very big, but these things do have a, a way of, of kind of uh, yes. growing and, and building. So there's a couple of things. First, in this idea of what happens with other running backs, what we might see if you were a trade destination, what would a trade destination be for Jonathan Taylor, and then what do the Colts do for a running game? Those are all uh, questions and conversations that have to be happening uh, right now. But when we get into how this agent responded to the owner of the team, you had Jim Ursay tweet out, NFL running back situation. We have negotiated a CBA, collective bargaining agreement, that took years of effort and hard work and compromise and good faith by both sides to say now that a specific player category wants another negotiation after the fact is inappropriate some agents are selling bad faith to which the agent responded bad faith is not paying your top offensive player who comes out better or worse i should say in that exchange and if you are somebody who has to deal with this agent are you changing your approach going forward with other nfl players no no i mean no I, I, the agent looks worse right now. I mean, Jim started it. Jim could have not sent that out. And, and again, we would probably still be 
in a situation, or at least somewhat of a situation, without the Colts, without Jim being vilified right here. I don't think it's going to change the dynamic. I mean, it may be a situation to where he looks at past tweets from this agent, and this agent has sent a couple out of the past, you know, regarding the Colts. Obviously, he represented Shaquille Leonard when Shaquille Leonard got his deal here. Maybe his agent looks at that and, uh, you know, wants to fire those off, and Jim wants to respond to it. But, yeah, at some point you got to stop acting like big dopey kids and, you know, realize that you're running a huge business and you're in the NFL. They say this all the time. This is the NFL. Well, this looks like something peewee style in junior high right now. Let me also tell you this, Tony, because we haven't gotten to this yet. So, what was it, three years ago, they traded up to draft Jonathan Taylor, got the blessing of Jim Mercer to do that. Ultimately, you, you, you drafted a guy that you knew was going to be devalued in this era of the NFL moving forward. So you traded up in round number two when he came out of Wisconsin as a rookie. You gave that up to then not offer him any sort of an extension, you know, not a you know, year, two years, whatever, nothing. This is how you're going to leave it. Again, what that shows to you is just how ridiculous and wrong the Chris Ballard blueprint of this team was. You can get straight back to the Jim They signed off on it, Tony. Signed off on it during the draft. So, yeah, you know what? Go up. You move up and get him. So you go ahead and you draft after moving up a disposable running back, and three years later – you feel as if you can't give him any more money to move forward in the situation you're in. To me, it's just beyond ridiculous. Before I, I, I let you go, um, that that Chris Ballard conversation is always a good one because I find myself <laughs> less and less impressed. The fan. What is the fan saying right now about this team? Well, um, most of them are anti Jonathan Taylor right now. Now, I will say this. Jonathan Taylor gets a little bit of the heat taken off because there's a long way to go between Jonathan Taylor the way that he was this time last week and where he is right now, like in the world of Victor Oladipo. So there's a long divide in there. It's more at his agent. You know, it's, hey, Jonathan Taylor, why do you listen to your agent? This guy's leading you wrong. you got to fire your agent and do that. So it's more on the agent. But I think also people around here, Tony, are sick and tired of dealing with this circus. It was all last year. And really, when you look back on it, all the way back to when Andrew Luck retired unceremoniously two weeks before the start of the season, it has really been nothing but a lot of circuses, a lot of melodrama, and a lot of losing. And people around here just kind of huff and puff and go, here we are again. Whose fault? Where we are again. Whose fault is the drama? Is it Jim Ursay or is it Chris Ballard? And how the hell is Shane Steichen, the new coach, dealing with all this? He just got here and he's like, what the, what the bloody hell is going on? Well, Tony, Shane's lucky because he just says like three words when you ask him a question anyway. So it's not like he's going to go too in-depth on this. Um, just about three words is about his uh, over right there. No, no, no. It, it is owner and it is general manager right here. I mean, you can look at the makeup of the team, you know, their build, and everybody wants to say, well, Andrew Luck started all this, and there's no doubt about it. But they had plenty of time now to make changes to get back in the ball game. This is your seventh for Chris Ballard. And normally, if you're a general manager of the NFL, there's no way in the world you last this long with that particular resume as a record. And then, Jim, you want to get back to the days where Jim, like when, Chris, when uh, Bill Polin was here, when Jim just kind of stayed quiet. You know, let Bill run things. Bill was the heavy hand. Bill did that, took care of stuff. Again, you had a mega superstar quarterback, but you want to get back to those days to where Jim, 
is, and, and, and I, I told you this the other day, Tony, and I don't know if you agree or not. Jim wants to be the voice of NFL owners. So I don't know if you're ever going to get him off, especially with social media the way that it is, and he gets his voice out to everybody. He wants to be the lead voice of NFL owners. So I think you're going to see still a lot of this because he's always going to let his opinions known because he wants to be the lead dog in terms of NFL owners moving forward. At least that's my theory. I don't know if you agree with it or not, but it's been my well, theory for the past year or so, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang with it, I think. One could argue that allows him to be more important than the team, which I never think is good. And yeah. in the case of uh, Chris Ballard, um, I, I think there. I think we've seen enough. We've seen enough well, I, failure. Yeah, hey, we hey, should. Really quick, I know, I know you got to run here, but you start something with regards to Daniel Snyder. All right, you know that doesn't directly affect your team. This type of stuff directly affects your team, and that's what you have to weed out. I think right. He should have stayed. You, the point yeah. is, is that Jim Irsay should have stayed quiet. I don't even think he's necessarily wrong. There was just no, no need to yeah. get this vocal. You made a thing out of nothing. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt, and that's that's what you try to weed out. If you want to, you know, be outspoken among league issues as an owner, do it. But in the case of your own team, when you start something like this completely and unnecessarily, can't happen. JMV from 93.5107.5, the fan in Indianapolis, the voice of sports in Indiana. I appreciate you taking the time. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. what he called casual conversation. Doesn't that contradict the president's statement saying that he never talked to any of Hunter Biden business associates? Clearly he talked, whether about the weather or whatever, but he said specifically that he's never talked to them. Doesn't this contradict them? I don't know what his comment is, and if we're going to... Well, I don't, I don't think that's what he said. He never said that he has never spoken to anyone. He said that he had nothing to do with Hunter Biden's business dealings. If he says hello to someone that he sees his son with, is he supposed to say, hi, son? Oh, no, I'm not going to say hello to the other people at the table or the other people on the phone. It's kind of a preposterous premise. to. That is... Congressman Dan Goldman, who is trying to act like Joe Biden's lawyer. This is criminal in its foolhardiness. It's a preposterous premise to suggest Joe Biden shouldn't talk to Hunter Business Associates. The premise is not ours. The premise is Joe Biden's, whom is on tape repeatedly saying I never spoke to my son about his overseas business dealings. This isn't even about Hunter Biden business associates. This is what he said. This is what Joe Biden said. I have never talked to my son about his overseas business dealings. To which we all said, yeah, that's a bunch of hooey. That's crazy town. Of course you did. You unbelievable fraud. Now it's preposterous because, well, there might be somebody who walked in with him. Or, my gosh, what if he was on the phone? If he's on the phone, I walk into a room, my wife's on the phone. I'm not, I don't immediately scream, hi, anybody on the phone? I usually whisper, who are you on the phone with? Who are you on the phone with? 
And then she'll uh, either kind of mouth back to me who she's on the phone with, or she'll wave me off like, hey, I'm in the middle of something. I'll be like, okay, go. There it is right there. Nobody, you wouldn't be expected to talk to the person on the phone. Congressman Dan Goldman is being too cute of a lawyer here. But my God, there's a lot of things that someone's going to have to lawyer through when it comes to Joe Biden not telling the truth. I have uh, seven grandkids, uh, four of them old, five of them old enough to talk on the phone. You know, every day I either text them or call them. Now, people are going to take that the wrong way, right? They're going to say, oh, you text or call your grandkids every day. What about Navy, who is uh, the kid, uh, you know, that Hunter had uh, out of wedlock? Do you, do you text her? They only started bringing her up last week. Finally admitting that they have a granddaughter named Navy. That's her name. You've got the whole Biden image about family this and family that, family the other. You couldn't acknowledge that you had a granddaughter at the first. You had to, you had to test drive that. You had to figure it out with your staff before you said anything. That's crazy. That's ugly. Really. But Dan Goldman, you're going to be hearing a lot about him. Democrats want him to be talking more. He wants to elevate himself, and he thinks he is smarter than the room. Super fancy lawyer, Dan Goldman, who wants to move the goalposts on Hunter Biden and his dealings, uh, on Joe Biden and his dealings with Hunter Biden. You understand why that is. You understand why they're moving these goalposts. Because everybody knows that they can no longer deny and deflect the way they have been. America gets that this Biden family is a really ugly, creepy, creepy family. And potentially criminal. Bring on the impeachment inquiry. Let's actually know the facts. This is Tony Katz today.